Welcome to the HCG Take, a podcast series that does exactly what it says on the tin, providing listeners with HCG's honest take on all things workplace, business, and life. Hi, we've just finished the latest HCG Academy event at the Charles Dickens Museum in London, and I'm absolutely delighted that our keynote speaker, Professor Chris Brady, has agreed to hang out with me for a little while longer. Chris has a fascinating and varied background and has held many roles across sport, the military and academia. He's currently the Chief Intelligence Officer at Sportsology and an author, co-authoring the award-winning book Quiet Leadership with Carlo Ancelotti and writing the bestseller The 90 Minute Manager. Prior to this, he was Professor of Management Studies at Salford University, where he founded the Centre for Sports Business and held the position of Dean at a number of UK leading universities. If that isn't enough, he's also served in the Royal Navy for 16 years. So as we sit in the home of arguably one of Britain, if not know the world's greatest storytellers, I'm sure that Chris has got some great stories of his own to share with us about the leadership styles, the success, and the magic moments of some of the individuals, teams, and organizations that he's been fortunate enough to work with. Hi, Chris. Glad you can join us today. You're welcome. Good morning. You've got quite an interesting and and I would say quite unique CV in terms of the roles you've held across a number of different industries and and hopefully we'll get the time today to to drill into some of that in a bit more detail. But I'd like to start really with, with just trying to understand a little bit more about your current role. So for a, a big sports fan like myself, the, the title of Chief Intelligence Officer at a firm called Sportsology Sounds brilliant. Tell me, what does that mean? What do you actually do? Actually, it is brilliant. It's um, a friend. A friend of mine, um, Mike Ford, started this company about seven years ago. Just took a gamble. He used to be the head of sporting um, performance at Chelsea for a period. So you know, worked with Abramovich and and all the people there, um, changing the way they looked at the analytics side, the more the more business side of, of the performance in, uh, industry. And and then took a gamble, jumped ship and went to America and set up this business. And over the last six or seven years has established himself as an advisor to a lot of really top um, sporting organisations across the main US sports. So baseball, football, basketball, hockey to a certain extent, uh, soccer now is grow- growing, the MLS is growing, um, but also spread out into European soccer as well. So what we, we act as advisors, um, we act also, for, we have a search stream as well in the business that, you know, looks for head coaches, looks for GMs and so on and helps clubs out with that. We also help out with... Um, uh, with uh, mergers and acquisitions. So recently we were advising one of the bidders for, for Chelsea and so on. So all that sort of stuff is going on in the background. My job is to provide the knowledge upon which the sales are based. So we can't be in a position ever where we're saying X, Y and Z is happening and be able to be called out over it. So my job is to make sure that all of our research is rigorous and stands up to any sort of um, interrogation by anybody else. And so, so I'm not afraid, I'm, I'm, I'm classically back office, but the back office product is effectively the front office sales to a certain extent. So if we don't provide that level of intelligence, they've got nothing to sell. So our product is knowledge. Um, Mike's, the, Mike's the ultimate salesman. 
he got the knowledge, but, but he needs us to keep backing that up. And so my team do that. My team create the knowledge products. That sounds really fascinating. Is there anything interesting you could share with us of, of any of your recent work that, that wouldn't breach any confidentiality agreements you've got? The interesting stuff that listeners would probably like is when you're within a club and you look at this club from the outside and obviously I can't give any details, but we're talking about we're talking about all of the major leagues. So we're talking about Premier League clubs, we're talking about big NBA teams, big basketball teams, and you get inside the club and you look at certain things and you think, this is quite antiquated, this. Why? And one of the fascinations for me has been to work with American organisations where there's no relegation and promotion. And so what is the motivation to win? And it's quite interesting. Like when, you work with a, when you work with a European club, where they can, if they get relegated, you know, if a Premier League team gets relegated now, it can be in excess of 100 million off the bottom line. That's, that's, a, that's a big business issue. Um, and so there's a motivation not to get relegated. Whereas if you're in closed leagues, like the big US leagues, that, that sort of motivation is not there. So what's the motivation of the ownership? So working out what the motivation of the ownership is in order to provide the product is, is quite fascinating. And I know that's not giving you any secret stories, but it's, it's, it's one of those businesses where every client you've got wants to remain unique and doesn't want you to pass any of their information to anybody else, which is, which is actually quite difficult because the second person you meet wants to know what the first person was doing and so on and so forth. So they're very keen on benchmarking. So what's, you know, what's that club over the road doing? Right? You know, which I find interesting because in a way I'm like, well, don't worry about that doing Let's work out what we should be doing. You know, let's try and work out something new. Let's try and be innovative. But actually, there's a sport is a very conservative industry, generally across the board. No, I think I think I can relate to that certainly in the work we do, where most clients we work with are looking for those benchmarks against others in the sector, even though sometimes they are telling us that they want to be better than the sector or different to the se- different to the sector. There's almost a, a comfort blanket in kind of coming back to what others are doing. Um, you, you talked about some of the, the European and perhaps kind of British sports clubs, organisations being a bit antiquated. And, and as a fan, that's certainly been my observation when we've, we've seen movements over the last maybe eight or ten years in sports such as cycling, what the British Olympic team have, have done. Um, in those sorts of instances, what do you think has been the catalyst? What, what has been that kind of moment where somebody or an organisation has realised that something has to change? Basically, it it nearly always comes down to winning. One of the things that uh, we were looking at years ago was um, if you look at what was the the catalyst for Rangers signing their first Catholic player? Well, part of it was that Celtic had just won the league nine years in a row. So it's like, well, if we're going to compete here, we we need to open up the talent pool. So let's do so and so, and then and then and the same the same happens the same happens globally. You know, why did Yorkshire get rid of their Yorkshire only players? Well, because they weren't competing at the time. To be honest, they'd probably be happy to go back to it now if they were if they, if they could. They wouldn't have made a lot of the mistakes they made. But um, so, so there's 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 always a there's always a sort of a burning bridge somewhere along the line which says okay. This if you look at Moneyball for example, the um, 
the subtitle of Moneyball, the book, is The Art of Winning an Unfair Game, Unfair System or whatever. So it's about, well, we haven't got enough money, so what do we do differently to be able to compete with people who can just throw money at this sort of stuff, you know? If you're Burnley, for example, how do you stay in the Premier League? You know, what, you, do, do you do something different? How do you work that? What, you know, what did Sean Dyche do over all those years to, to stay in the Premier League? And how does that work? And how does the board, by the way, sort of live with that? How do they... Um, um, Graham Taylor once said to me when he was at Watford, once said to me, I was asking him about how Watford, you know, because they were a bit of a yo-yo club at the time, was how, you know, how, how do you manage that? He said, well, we accept that we're a top 30 club. <laughs> we're not quite sure where in that 30 we're going to be, but if we're in the bottom 10 of that 30, we're in the top of the championship. If we're in the middle 10, we're halfway up. The, if we're in the top 10, we're in the top of the... And, and I think that that was a very realistic way of looking at a club like Watford. So it's about understanding understanding where you are, understanding what the parameters are, not, you know, to a certain extent, not flying too close to the sun. As a lifelong West Ham fan, I can certainly relate to the top 30 top 30 model and the yo-yoing backwards and yeah. forwards over the well, years. Well, you know what Sam Allardyce said? He said, uh, I, I've decided not to go to West Ham way, which apparently involves a lot of relegation. <laughs> <laughs> so what, just on that then, so what, what's your view of what David Moyes has done different? Because he's come in and largely got the same team of players on the pitch and, and to a certain degree off the pitch, but seems to have got different and better results from them. Yeah, I mean, I knew David at um, at Everton and, uh, and and met him a couple of times since then. He's very he's very straightforward. Just looks at the basics and very straightforward. So if you look at Antonio up front and and Bowen up front, if you if if you're going to concern yourself with being very very solid defensively, um, then it helps to have pace up front. And people who are prepared to run the channels, prepared to work hard, and like so. So he looks at Antonio, he looks at Bowen, and, go, and goes, "Right, I've still, if we keep eight people behind the ball and just keep kicking it up that end of the pitch, I mean, in very simple terms, those two are going to get on to the end of it every now and again, and then then we can join in, and when we join in, we can do so. That's actually pretty straightforward tactically. Yeah, making that happen, doing all the work necessary to do that is really important. But he's prepared to do that. He's very detailed. He's very, very methodical. I mean, you look at some of the great coaches down the lines, they're extremely patient about everything, much more so than the players. You know, so they, you know, there's this great story about Arrigo Saki when the Milan team, and, that, um, and he would move players by one foot and say, just move across here, you know, like six inches. Now, yeah, that's right, that's good, that's where you are. And the players, you know, you're talking about Hullet, Van Basten, all these players, and they're like, what the hell is going on here, you know? But... And all of a sudden they start to win. Oh, okay. This guy must this guy knows what he's doing. Let's let's and you know, now that was quite innovative at the time to have that level of detail. But David Moyes has always been that type of coach. No, he's he's certainly someone I, I kind of rate as a manager and what, what he's done with the club. But I think um and then there's other examples where sometimes winning football isn't necessarily done in a in a sexy or a or a great way to watch. So as a football manager, how do you inspire and get the buy-in from the players to that, that kind of way of winning and that, that kind of way of playing where perhaps it's kind of going against the, their kind of personalities? Yeah, I, I think that's really important. Um, Bill Parcells, who was, who was a, an NFL manager and actually, in using an American term, was the winningest 
manager ever in terms of percentages. He used to say, get as many quick wins as you can uh, early in your tenure. And that might be just making everybody wear a tie or something. It might be tiny things and you just, and this will work. This, this, do this and this will be better. Do this and this will be better. Um, you, I know you and I were talking earlier this morning, but you get the behaviors right, the culture will follow along with that. And um, when you look at, you know, sexy football or whatever, whatever you ultimately you got to win. You got to win, you know. As a West Ham supporter, I mean, there used to be the same thing about Spurs. Here. Well, there's a Spurs way, but apparently that Spurs way doesn't win the league for about 50 years, you know. And apparently with West Ham, that doesn't win the league ever, you know. So, yeah, are we happy with that? Actually, some of the fans are. You know, some of the fans at Manchester City, for example, were really upset when they started winning stuff because that that wasn't that's not who we are. <laughs> you know, we you know, you know the, the fact that they're they're one of their major heroes was Sean Gota. You know, sort of t- tells you a lot about where the club's moved in the in the last ten years. So, it, it, the way in which you decide to play, you can be successful within that those parameters. We want to do. We want to play this way, and we accept that we might finish eighth every year. If everybody's happy with that, and people are paying to come through the door, and you're you're earning, and the club's profitable, fine. Yeah, but if you're saying, well, actually, we want to be in the Premier League every year, sorry, we want to be in Champions League every year, then you have to do something different. And then all that matters is, are we in it? So, our, I don't know, it'd be interesting to get an Arsenal fan on next. Happy? Not happy. Um, happier than I was after six games at the start of the season, but not happy after the last six. You know, so, you know, expectations are important as well. Where do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You know, do you think you're... Do you think you're special being Arsenal? Um, well, if you do, then finishing what they were fifth, weren't they? I think then that's failure. You know, so if he finishes sixth or seventh next year, is he going to be in a job? So I guess is that then from a kind of a corporate perspective and trying to to take some of those lessons from sport and uh, and apply them back to some of the organisations we work with. Really about the expectation setting, and and we quite often hear the the kind of the Google analogy when we're, we're talking about workplaces and not everybody wants a Google-esque workplace. And, and actually for some organizations, something which is perhaps functional, perhaps um, a six or seven out of 10 is, is good enough. So it's almost having that foresight when you're doing that vision in peace, when you're setting the strategy to agree what success looks like. I, I think um, research on, on the utilization of space is one of the sort of, least sexy and most undervalued bits of architecture in a sense. A big, big part of our business. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it's massively undervalued because if you look at it, I mean, one of the biggest challenges I ever had in my working life, and, you know, I've worked for a long time, was trying to move academics into open space. Now, the rationale for that is works perfectly. We're supposed to be a place where there's an exchange of ideas, Right. Why would you have separate offices if that was the objective of the organisation? And yet, for hundreds of years, that's been the objective. You know, you have a small office, you have enough room for four or five seats so students can come in and it's a local tutorial and all that sort of stuff. So you had to, you had to deal with that as well. Um, the, the best example of that I saw was at Austin University, and this going back 30, 40 years, where they tried to do completely open plan and there was almost a, a revolt. Um, and then in the end, what they did was to have um, 
uh, you know where you've got there, you, you can move to opaque glass, you know, you can just flick a switch. So they had um, little isolated cabins, if you like, around, around the open space workplace in the middle. And those cabins, you could go into those and close the glass so that you could have a private conversation with individual students and that. But you also had the central space, which was open and everybody could exchange ideas. And when I was trying that, I, I, I literally... Honestly, the rebellion against me for that, you know, it was a really difficult time to get... Listen, guys, and, and they'd even say, yeah, I can understand the rationale. Yes, that's right. I don't want to do it. And you're like, oh, okay, well, how are we going to get around this? But, you know, one of my big wins in life was a guy, a really senior professor came to me um, after we'd worked in an open space for quite a while. And he said, oh, by the way, the, the open space thing, he said, I have to admit it's working really well because a couple of ideas have germinated because we were able to just hear each other talking and all that. He said, notwithstanding, <laughs> notwithstanding the fact it's working really well, I still hate it. And I hate you for doing it. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, fine, I'm fine. But, but, but I think it's absolutely vital. You know, we, we, um, we dispense with a, a physical library. So we had to turn all that into social space, but give people the opportunity within those social spaces to be able to access the, the library online. It's working out what's going to work with the type of staff you've got. Now, if you need to move to a certain thing for some reason, you know, you've got to move to a smaller space because you can't afford it or whatever, then sometimes it's, you need to change the people to fit, you're happy to be in that sort of space. So it's, it's a really interesting topic area, to be honest. It's, it's an area, higher education, where, where we as a practice have done quite a lot of work. So I recognise some of the challenges you're talking about there. And I kind of, I, I liken it to the, the academics being the front office. So the, the challenges are no different to what we see with um, FIANAs in the professional world, um, law firms when we're dealing with banks, some of those in the, the more senior roles. So how, how do you win those people over when you're you're doing something which they really don't want you to do to them. Ah, well, again, it comes back to winning, and and it also comes back to being aware that sometimes you might have to lose one of your best players, because you know I think the way in which you talk about front office. I mean, if you think about those as players and support staff, the the way I normally work when I go into that sort of environment, if it's a you know if it's a big um, uh, trading bank or you know. Uh, you know, you're not not just a retail bank, uh, or or as you say, a law firm where every, everybody thinks they're they're, they're special. Um, if you go into any of those organisations, I always start with the support staff. Get the support staff together and say, right, you're the most important people in this organisation because these idiots can't work without you. And they're like, yeah, they are idiots, aren't they? And you're like, you're like, yeah, so what we need to do is, and the way I describe it, I say, what we need to do is remove any possibility of any excuses. So if this guy doesn't deliver on his sales or this guy or this player doesn't play right, I don't want him coming back and saying his boots are wrong or the, or the kit room is wrong or anything. I need all that to be immaculate in order that I can... I can confront these guys. So if I want to sack somebody, I need you support guys to help me. And they're like, brilliant. <laughs> so, so it's a bit sneaky, I, I, I own up. But it, it's, it's, it's getting everybody to understand that I'm, you, you're not going to be out of play unless the groundsman's cut the pitch. You know, you, you said the grass was too long. Well, if he gets it just right and we don't play well, well it's down to you. 
<laughs> it's not down to the, it's not the groundsman's fault or somebody else's fault. So that relationship between the support staff, and, you know, as you said, back office and front office, is absolutely vital. So to me, that's the, that's the leader's job. Not the leader of the support staff or the leader of the front office. So not the head coach or the head groundsman, but me making sure the head coach and the head groundsman working together and they all know they're actually equally important. So that, that you know, now, it, it, I, whether that works or not is entirely another matter. Yeah, no, quite, quite often our, our clients will sit in that, that kind of back office, as we've called it, usually within a, a, a business, whether, whether it's media, whether it's law, whether, whether it's finance, the real estate and, and the HR teams who we're, we're quite often working with now very much kind of fit, fit into that sphere. So what, what do you think are the kind of the key ingredients they need to help make that business case for change work? I think, well, as I say, sometimes there's just a burning bridge that you can point to and say, look, if we don't do X, we're going, to, we're going under. You know, sometimes it's that simple. Even then, by the way, in very conservative cultures, they, they'd rather go under. <laughs> you know, I think the pandemic, the one industry that's going to be the most disrupted it's going to be education. It's going to be, the changes are going to be massive and they're going to be massive in the academic side. And so the support staff helping them get through that is going to be really important. But, you know, like the law firms, like doctors and that, there's a bit of a God complex about the academics and the lawyers and the doctors, you know. You know we're, we're brilliant. We can run it. Well, actually, no, the doctors, most consultants are useless managers which is one of the reasons the NHS is in a state, you know. And, and it's the same in, in law firms, you know. There's only a few law firms now that have started to employ, you know, CEOs, you know, that are not lawyers, you know, heaven forfend. <laughs> so, so, I mean, they're, they're very interesting times. I don't claim to have the answers, but that, those, those are the issues. No, it's certainly good to get your insight. And again, I think we can... We can relate to what you just talked about there around um, the kind of the, the change process and the consultation in particular. So we use something called the ADCAR methodology, which is really about building the awareness and desire yeah. before we, we go forward with the knowledge and ability. And, and actually, we've quite often found that if we can share genuine awareness with people and tell them why we're changing and the, the business or the organisation reasons behind that, even if on a personal level they don't get on board with it, they can at least understand it and, and partially come I think with at us. the front end of any change programme, it's actually the same at the front end and the back end. So you've got, you know, your front end is, you say, the awareness time, and then you've got the middle bit where you're actually doing stuff. Then you've got the back end where you're dealing with it. And the front and the back end have got two key, key bullets, transparency, scenario planning. Have both of those in place so so that you can engage people in the scenario planning. So you don't sit around, you and me don't sit around and do the scenario planning. We engage everybody in that process. But then we share everything so everybody knows what's going on. I think you're absolutely right. You referenced Billy Bean earlier, and he's, he's certainly someone I've, I've kind of read about more than just the Brad Pitt film, which I think probably most people know him from. And, and also know he's quite a big inspiration to... A number of the the sports leaders in the UK. So he's someone Clive Woodward, Gareth Southgate, Dave Browsford have all kind of quoted. Um, if I just use those three as as examples, um, all being highly successful with what they've done, all come across very different in terms of their personality and approach. So 
from a leadership perspective, is there any consistencies or magic ingredients you see which make someone to kind of coin, I guess, Jim Collins' phrase, go from being a kind of a good good leader to a great one? Yeah, well, there is, and, uh, and it's something that's often ignored um, when in recruitment. And we're trying to, in a sense, work out an index for this thing so that we can add it to our recruitment searches. And across, I, I've just finished some research for the League Managers Association on the last 150 years of football management in this country, basically, in Britain. And so I've looked at four or five hundred managers and you know, across, across the continent and everything like that. And you look at the top successful ones and you go, right, as you say, what have they got in common? Well, you know, you know, Ancelotti stands on the touchline, doesn't do anything. Klopp jumps about all over the place. So they're different characters, they're different personalities. What have they all got in common? And the ones that you mentioned, intellectual curiosity, number one. They're, they're interested in stuff. They want to learn. You know, they don't ossify. They don't say, oh, I've, I've got this system and it's going gonna, it's gonna to really work. I mean, Ancelotti says something really interesting. When, he, when he'd left, so he's working as a player with Saki. Then he worked as his assistant coach in the World Cup. So what Saki did was very innovative. So Carlo bought into that. So he goes, right, so we're going to play 4-4-2. That's right. And he said, I said, any regrets from those times? He said, not really. He said, we just maybe one. He said, he got offered um, Roberto Baggio uh, when he was at Parma, I think. And, um, and he said, no, we don't want him. We won't fit into the 4-4-2 properly. He said, what an idiot. How stupid was I? He said, so, you know, so he said, when I got offered Zidane and Kaka, I basically changed to make sure, the, <laughs> make sure they were happy. And, 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 he's, and so... Um, being too rigid about that, being able to, to have that intellectual curiosity and flexibility, is, is really important. Because if you look at if you look at the if you look at Real Madrid beating beating Liverpool, if you go back over the last three or four years, um, when Carlo was at um, at Napoli, they played Liverpool three times, I think, in the Champions League, and um, they lost one, won one, and drew one, but there was only one goal in all of the games. One game was one all, the other two were one nils. So this is the most free-scoring team in the league and Carlo kept, always kept them down to a maximum of one goal, right? Goes to Everton, he's the only Everton manager this century to win at Anfield. Kept Liverpool down to no goals. Gets to the final of the Champions League, everybody says Liverpool are going to roll over this lot. Hang on, no, what we'll do is we'll do something slightly, slightly different here. So having that intellectual flexibility and that curiosity to be able to learn stuff is the only, the only sort of, you ask for the unifying thing, you know, because it's not, you know, you know is Clough a better manager than Paisley? Completely different characters. Paisley to Shankly, both working together and yet totally different managers. So... It's not what you can see. It's not, you know, Conte jumping around like a jack-in-a-box or Carlo. What do you want? They're both pretty successful, you know. How do they do it? And and they, they, the one, as I say, the one unifying fact I've, I've found in like, two years of research is is that the one I can I can confidently say, you know, when people are... Because when you say you've done this work, everybody asks, that's the question everybody asks. But it's this, which is pretty boring. But if you put that into your recruitment processes in any in any sphere you're in, if you have that as a key, 
So, you know, has, you know, what we'll do is we'll have essentials, won't we? And we'll have something like um, has worked in this industry or does this or does that. Why isn't intellectual curiosity at the top of that list? I'm hiring somebody to run something. That's number one. If he hasn't got that, we're done. No, that, that's fascinating and on a personal level actually quite reassuring because curious is actually one of the, the headline words we use on our job descriptions oh, right, when, when we're bringing well, well people done, in. Well, so well done you. Any, anyone listening will probably think I teed that up, but yeah. that's, a, that's a nice yeah, coincidence. No, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, well, I can honestly say he definitely didn't tee it up. Um, but then again, I'd lie and say <laughs> that anyway. Checks in the post. <laughs> Um, so Thank you. maybe then if we can we can change tax on that because I can see how that works in a sports world and and how that's very much transferable into the um, into the corporate world. If we can maybe go back to your military experience where you you served in the the Royal Navy and I think success in a military world looks very different from anything in in kind of corporate or or even sports world. In the corporate world, if we get something wrong. Normally, the worst that happens is somebody loses money. Even in, even in sport, you lose a cup final, perhaps at that moment in time. It's, it's the worst thing in the world, but ultimately you go on and, and live another day. The consequences of getting it wrong in, in warfare can be quite significant. So what are the things you've seen within your, your time in the military and any research you've, you've done since, which are really kind of transferable to the corporate world from a, a leadership situation? What are some of those really good things you've seen where people have dealt with a, a crisis situation which you think we could all learn from? The thing is, one of the things that is happening with the military is the, the idea of a command and control system is very frowned upon in business. I mean, we kind of, you know, we kind of people telling everybody what to do, you know, it's all right. Well, actually, one of the things that when you're in a, a life and death situation is stop. And when I say stop, just stop, otherwise you're going to die or something might happen. Um, now, the problem is transferring those type of command and control situations to the, to the um, corporate world. So, for example, there's a really, really interesting book about how the red arrows work and all that sort of stuff. And as far as I'm concerned, in the corporate world, it's, it's a complete waste of time because they, they, they miss something by an inch, they're dead. So that's quite a motivation to do, to do it correctly. You know, whereas, as you say, we haven't got the same... However, there are situations, even in... Uh, I, I can remember, for example, during 9-11, um, uh, I was working in the city during 9-11 and in charge of a business school in the city. And 9-11 came, you know, and watching it, it was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I can remember I was in the gym watching same. it. I was in the gym watching it. It's two o'clock in the afternoon and I looked at it. Having been in the military, I, mean, I was out of the military by then, but having been in the military, when, even when the first plane struck, I, I, I said to people around me, I said, this, this is odd. And they said, well, you know, these things happen. I said, not really, not that sort of plane, you know. And then, then you saw the second one come in. Before the second one hit, once, when I saw it in the air coming, I, I immediately got on my mobile phone and I said to my PA, Clear, clear the building now. Why did I say that? I just I went into automatic and said, if they're hitting financial centres, we're sat in the middle of one. Get everybody out. So she emptied the building out. Um, nothing happened, obviously. But I just sort of went into that mode. And sometimes you need that mode. So you need those, you, you need somebody to take that lead. And I'm not saying 
everybody's got to serve in the military, there are characters that will take that lead. So in certain situations, things that work really well in the military, like command and control, are necessary. Somebody's got to take command. We're doing this. We, you know, you know we, we've got to do this, otherwise this, this business is going out of business. And so I think that the, the command and control is unnecessarily, unnecessarily a pejorative term because sometimes it's really, really important. And also the other thing in the military is that, and I mentioned this to you when we were chatting earlier, is that when you come under fire, you immediately transfer command to somebody who knows where the fire is coming from. So same in business. If, if, if you're the boss and you're not quite sure about what's happening in the trading floor, the guy on the trading floor tells you there's something going wrong. You listen to him because he's your guy. You don't try and make every decision. So you transfer that decision making to the person best able to make the decision. Obviously, you make the final decision, but you'd be stupid to ignore it. And a lot of So I think that sort of you either get people in the corporate world overly obsessed with command and control. You know, I'm the boss. You know, I'm a unicorn. I'm the only person who can make this business work. Or you get the reverse and they say, well, I don't make any decisions. I, you know, I defer to the... There's, there's this balance that you've got to do between these different leadership styles for different situations. Your situational, situational context is absolutely crucial to decision-making. Great, thank you. And it, it kind of reminds me of um, quite a lot I've read and, and seen about Japanese manufacturing businesses and that kind of mantra where um, man nearest problem knows problem yeah. best, where yeah. you almost have that kind of... Yeah conveyor belt and the, the kind of the idea of the bell where if somebody sees something's wrong they ring the bell the production line stops and and a group of people will come together and brainstorm it and people are very much I given think that it's absolutely in the corporate world if you remember well i remember anyway if you go back into the 80s go back into the 80s the flattened management system you know is all, all the rage and flattened management system i used to have two two tricks for that i used to go into an organization and they would say we're very so the boss would go we're, we're very we're a very flat organization here we're all equals and i'll go oh, okay okay and i'd walk over I'd walk over to the first worker i could find and say excuse me can you tell me where your boss is and he go yeah he's over there I go right okay so we now know there are bosses and you're just talking the talk but actually that's not how it's working but i think the other thing that what that did as well it flattened out a certain strata of worker which in systems theory is called the monitoring function and so it was like a guy in his 50s or something who'd been there ages you know knew but knew all the well yeah that happens every thursday you know because of that. so he knew everything and I, and the example i used to use was if you go to if you go to tgi fridays or any of the big chains there's a sign at the door saying, stand here until we're ready to see you, right? So at which point I turn around and leave. But if you go into a little family-owned Italian restaurant or something, somebody meets you at the door, but you'll also see somebody stood in a corner, an older person stood in a corner, which is either the owner or his wife or one of the family stood in the corner, and they're monitoring the whole situation. And they'll just suddenly go to one of the ways, somebody over there wants something. And suddenly it arrives. You know, you don't have to be ordered around, you know. Why do they want you to stand there at CGI Fridays? Because they want you to go to the bar. I don't want to go to the bar, I want to go and eat. I don't drink, I want to go and eat. You know, yeah, well, you can't do that, sir, because, you know, I can see the table over there. Look, it's empty. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's a, a frustration the Hennigan family have had many <laughs> many times, and I, and I can promise you that weight becomes more frustrating when well, you've got two hungry you, kids. I can tell you now. Yeah, I can tell you now. You have to you have to really be careful here because you know even now my kids hate me for the number of times we've turned around quite out, <laughs> <laughs> and they still hate me for that. So be careful how you manage that. It's, it's reassuring to know I'm I'm not alone on that one. Um, I could literally sit here and talk to you all day, Chris, with the, the kind of the vast amount of experience and and stories you've got. But it's an age thing, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like to to wrap us up by just asking you one one final question. So you you are very fortunate with the the experience you've got and, and some of the roles you've had. When you look back over your X number of years, shall we say, work, working experience. <laughs> What's the what's the one thing you've learned which you wish you'd known X number of years ago? Actually, that's, that's, that's a really good question. I think the biggest thing is that every organisation you're in has a specific objective or goal and you need to clearly understand that in order to match your skills and actions and all that to that thing. I mean, I told you earlier on about working in the bookies. Um, you work in the bookies and it was explained to me very quickly that our role is to take money out of somebody's pocket and put it into ours. You know, now if you, if you understand that, then there's... I, I, I gave a talk to, to all the gambling regulators globally, like hundreds of them in the room, and they were arguing about some gambling regulation about that companies were tricking punters into doing X, Y, and Z. And, and I gave this talk and I, and I said, I am amazed that you lot are amazed. That's what their job is. Their job is to take money off you. That's what they do. Why, are you, why do you think it's odd that they do it in that way? And it's the same thing. I, I did a thing with the, with the London Stock Exchange years ago and they were saying, we, you were losing business or something. You work in the gambling industry. What, um, what do you do differently? I said, well, if you look at the gambling industry, virtually every bet is some sort of combination or some sort of manifestation of a fixed odds bet. It's a three to one. It's, a, it's, it's basically a statistical thing. It's a, it's a probability thing, right? So that's the base. Now, how do we get people to go from having a bet on a three to one horse and how do we get them to make more money? I know, we'll call it a double. We'll let them go double and they can do it because there's more chance of them losing then and, uh, and, and they think it's a new product. Oh, I know, let's go, let's go for a treble. I know, let's have a Yankee which is four, four horses, four different bets. So it's 28 different bets. Let's go for a super Yankee, 54 different bets or whatever. So they're constantly repackaging the same thing. So I'm talking to the guy at the stock exchange and saying, oh, I don't know, what, you, what do you do? Just repackage the traders, repackage this and that and the other. And he's, he's thinking, yeah, yeah, we should, do, we should do that. So it was just that business was slightly different. I mean, it was, it was akin to gambling, obviously. Well, it is gambling, but I mean, that's a whole other issue. Um, but um, but it, it's like, well, how do we repackage this? But ultimately, there is an objective. And that objective in football may be to win the Champions League or maybe to avoid relegation or whatever. Right, that's what you've employed me for, to avoid relegation. You know, right, I, I, I can do that. I can, I can do that for you. But, but 
you can't lose sight of that. So the first lesson I learned in gambling was exactly that. You know, I was, I was saying, well, it doesn't seem fair that you're doing that. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what I was thinking of. <laughs> the, the boss, the bookie goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, that's not our job. Our job's not to be fair. And, you know, so it, it, just understanding that. And it... And it goes across any industry. It goes across any industry. It applies everywhere. It applies to the military as well. What's their job to do here? What are we trying to do here? Uh, and, and I think understanding that's important. So, so I guess then the final kind of takeaway for, for, for everyone listening is that when you are looking for a role, whether that's as, a, as an employee, a contractor, or, or perhaps even as we do as, as consultants, it, it's making sure that you understand the true objective of the business and, and as we've talked about a, a few different examples there making sure that that's something which is a aligned to your personal ecosystem so it's, it's something that you can you can get on board with and that your kind of personal motivators and objectives match with yeah. with the organization yeah. yeah i i can do that i mean for, for me smoking was a big thing my parents were big smokers and so i'm very anti-smoking and so if British American Tobacco comes in and says, we'll give you 50 million to build a new university, I'm going to go, no, thanks. But I need to know that. I need to know that's, that's, part, of, that's part of my ecosystem in your terms. Doesn't fit, doesn't match. So, we, so we're not working together, you know. I think a, a lot of young people as well will ask me, well, you know, what, what do I need to do to an interview to get a job? Just be yourself. And they say, but they might not want me. And go, well, you're probably best off not being there then. Exactly. <laughs> Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank and you, you for your time. And you. And listeners, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Thanks very much. <laughs>